Inspiring stories, important topics. Welcome to Passion in Action from Vitas Healthcare. Hi, I'm Diane Paceres, and this is Passion in Action. Patients in hospice and their families face incredible challenges every day. They often need help navigating complex situations and difficult decisions. When facing these obstacles, social workers can be a crucial resource of guidance and assistance. The support social workers provide is invaluable. On today's episode, I'll be joined by two VITAS social workers. Our guests are Anise Kennedy Hanlon and Anna Rackley. Together, we'll discuss how they adapt to each set of unique circumstances, how they help patients and families get connected with much-needed benefits, how they navigate family dynamics, and much more. Welcome, Anise and Anna. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I am so delighted that you've been able to join us today for this podcast. And I'm even more excited to hear about your journeys and your work experiences as social workers in hospice. So with that, today's session is really all about the role of social workers and how you support patients, because those roles are incredibly important, as you well know, in supporting our patients and their families in navigating challenging times at the end of life. So with that, let's start with understanding what you think of social work and what social work means to each of you. Anna, can we start with you? For me, social work is very much being of service to others. And that's what really brought me into this profession. And not only that, we can really be of service to others in lots of different venues as a social worker from working with a business like through the employee assistance program all the way to doing mental health counseling. So social work just in general allows me to be of service to others. Wonderful. How about you, Anise? Well, social work is a professional discipline that is based upon helping people. So social workers advocate for various people, vulnerable people, regular people. And I think to sum it up, we're really helpers in any type of situation that people need help with. In hospice in particular, we have the death component that gets thrown into it. Well, can each of you take a moment to share a little bit about how you got into being a social worker and what your journey and career has been like? Anise, maybe we'll start with you this time. Well, ironically, my first career was sales and marketing. And one day my boss came to me and said, Anise, you're a great worker, but the problem is, is you're always trying to help the client in different ways rather than if they had a problem with paying their bill for our services, I was always looking to give them a break. So I decided, I think my focus has always been on helping. So that's how I came to social work. And I've always had a very strong interest in death and dying since I was young. So that's how I landed in hospice. Anna, how about you? What's been your career journey as a social worker? So the majority of my career has actually been kind of on the flip side of hospice in long-term care in rehab facilities. I first became interested in social work when I worked as an office manager for a foster care and adoption agency. 
So that was really where I was introduced to this profession because I didn't know much about it beforehand. So when I decided to go back to school, I went for social work. And then I came into hospice when I felt I was ready. So I feel that a hospice social worker, in my opinion, I felt like I needed to have my mindset and my heart ready to have this type of profession. I knew that my career was leading towards this position. It was just a matter of me being confident in my skills and coming to this side of things. So VITAS has always been, as a social worker on the other side, was always a resource to me. And it was an organization that I felt very proud to partner with. So now I get to be on this side of things. So Anna, what makes your role as a social worker at VTOS more rewarding than some of your roles in your past? I'm super excited that I can develop relationships again. So I'm accustomed to being the only social worker in a building because that's just how long-term care is set up. I didn't have other people to bounce ideas off of or help with insight. So because there are other social workers, because there's teams, I can go back to building those relationships that I appreciate with the families and with the patients. When I was a social worker in long-term care, I just did not have time to do that. I was pulled in so many directions. But here, I get to actually focus on relationship building, being a resource to the families, connecting them with those resources, emotional support. I'm not rushed. And I feel that as social workers, because we get to develop those relationships with the families and with the patients, then we can really add to the team and see the person as a whole. Anise, how about yourself? What about your role at VTUS as a social worker? Do you find more rewarding than any of your prior roles? VTUS, I've always loved. I've left a couple of times and come back. And people always say to me, why did you come back to VTUS again? The number one reason is the education. VTAS has always been known in the industry as being one of the best educators. So that's one of the reasons why I come back and I find the role fulfilling. I think there's a lot of respect here at VTAS for all disciplines, whether you're the team secretary, whether you're the housekeeper in the office. I think it's important that they show the respect for all the employees and they really do make it a place that you can share your ideas. So that's why I'm back. We're glad to have you. Thank you. So each of you are members of our interdisciplinary team. And as a team member and being a social worker, can you share how you support some of the nurses and other team members? It's very vital, I think, in hospice especially because there's a real chance for stress and burnout. So I think it's important as a social worker to make sure that your team is running smoothly. Sometimes, sadly, people have their own issues and problems behind the scenes. So I think if social worker is able to get people to open up and trust them as a social worker, that maybe we can help the employees to let people know that they're in trouble or they need help. Maybe they don't have money for gas. Maybe something happened with their childcare that day. But it's important for them to get to talk because once they release some of that and vent it, They can serve our patients better. They have their own deaths too. 
We always forget that, that employees go through the same thing that our patients do. And it's important for a good, productive team to have everybody know they can reach out for help. Anna, what would you like to add to that? I definitely see myself as a resource for the team as well. I'm thankful that I've developed my relationships with them, that they feel comfortable calling me throughout the day. If they're struggling with this or that with the patients, then they just kind of vent with me. Regarding the IDT, I think the biggest contribution that we make as social workers is to remind all of the people that we work with that our patients are, they're very real in their struggles and that there are other factors contributing to this one very big struggle that they're going through. And I think that as social workers, we sometimes remind the more clinical components to be maybe a bit more compassionate because I think we can get very caught up in our roles. And not only are we with that patient at that time, but we have other patients that we're going to see. So we can get very caught up in, okay, we need to get this done because we need to get to the next person. We've got an appointment, et cetera. And so I think as social workers, we remind our team to just maybe slow down now and then and look at them as the beautiful human beings that they are and see where they are at that very moment and start from there. Not that our nurses are not compassionate at all, but I think as social workers, we get so much of that backstory from the families that we can really connect, okay, they're struggling with this, but they're also struggling with these other aspects. And then both of those or all of those components put together can kind of erupt. So I think it gives the team perspective from that end to just maybe slow down and let's meet them where they are. Let's talk a bit more about your relationships with patients and their families. And I recognize that each situation is very different and unique. How do each of you go about assessing what your patient and family members actually need by way of support from you as a social worker? Anna, let's start with you. I like to start by letting them know who I am and what it is that I can help with. And I approach my assessments from more of a conversation standpoint. I like to just sit down and get to know them. I like to get to know the back history. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? I find that as they feel more comfortable in talking with me, they're going to be the ones that share with me where their struggles are. So I just ask a few probing questions and they really take over the rest and just tell me what it is that they need. From sitting there, we look at their affect. How are they responding? Are they tearful? And that kind of gives us cues as far as what type of emotional support they might need. And some families, honestly, just don't need much social work services at all. But I still like to drop in and just develop that relationship because anything can change. Anise, how about yourself? One of the things I love to do when I go into homes, and I think it's important for people to actually put their eyes on people when they're doing the assessment. Very difficult to do over the telephone. But when I go into the house, I love finding either a photograph, picture on the wall, you know, piece of artwork, and then start talking from there. Where'd you get it? Who are the people in the picture? And pretty soon after about a half an hour and maybe sitting with them and have a coffee, they start 
telling their life story. We're doing a life review. And from there, we can start to figure out if there's real serious issues, because I try to look for that first. Is there a serious mental health issue? Is there a safety issue? Are they not able to buy food? And then we go from there. And the important thing is make them feel important with VTAS. I think their lives matter and we're going to help them in any way that they feel they need it. Thank you both for that. So I also recognize that sometimes your role as a social worker really requires you to be a patient and family advocate. Can you share how you play the role of a patient and family advocate, Anna? We, as social workers, I think we advocate on a daily basis. It's from the smaller issues to the larger ones. My main goal in advocacy is patient rights. and maybe reminding staff that our patients have the right to make wrong choices, even though they may decide on something and we don't agree with it. So advocacy for me is very much about what the patient wants, not what we as a team might want, but what they want. And sometimes it's advocating on a larger scale, maybe helping get certain things done in the community resource-wise, because the connection with resources, it's not always that easy. But ultimately, it's just about quality of life and their self-determination, for me, that advocacy plays. How about you, Anise? How have you had to play an advocate for your patients and families? I think we do it as social workers probably all day long. I think we also advocate for staff. That's another side to advocating. But When I meet families and patients, I let them know that I'll go to bat for you. However, the reality is if something changes, we may not be able to do exactly what you wanted for safety reasons. But if a patient, we often get patients who live alone, they refuse to get a caregiver, they want to stay in their living room for the rest of their life. And we have to work around it with the medical director and the nurses and say, it's not ideal. However, could we all give a little, maybe we visit a little more, maybe we find a neighbor to help. And generally, I think people appreciate that we're all advocating and the team becomes a group advocator, which is ultimately my goal. And Anise, would you be able to provide a specific example of where there may have been a challenging situation where you've had to advocate for a patient and their family? Yes, I had a gentleman who mentally ill all of his life, a very sad guy. He didn't like to really mix with people. He didn't want people in his apartment in the first place. And he refused to get a caregiver or go to a facility. So we ended up all as a group deciding that really it was his right, as long as we could manage it, to live in his chair for the rest of his life. And that's pretty much what he did, but it was very difficult on the staff. So we'd all visit as much as possible. VITAS was very supportive. The medical director was supportive and actually a very good help to us in how to change up the plan of care to accommodate this gentleman. And at the end, he came, I think, to really like us because he knew we'd care for him. We'd take care of him. Well, it's a great story. Anna, how about yourself? Do you have an example you'd like to share with us? I think our examples are very similar. So most of the time in working with our patients, 
nobody, I don't think, ever really grows up and says, oh, I hope I go into a nursing home one day. Their goal is to stay at home where surrounded by their belongings. And if they have the capacity to do that, especially when you couple that with limited social support or familial support, as a team, we have to try to make that happen for them. So I agree very much with Anise. It's about bringing the team, getting everybody on the same page so that we could all figure out a way, how can we make this happen for this patient so that they could have a good quality of life. And of course, they're going to come to love us because we're VTOS and we just dive in there and get our hands dirty with the families. I've had very similar experiences like what Anise was saying. Great stories. They're very touching as well. So can you both explain more about the emotional and spiritual support that you offer to our patients and their family members? I find that when we're dealing with death or with dying, most of the time the emotional support that families are wanting me to offer is just someone to sit with. I feel comfortable sitting in that silence. I think that's one of my strengths as a social worker. And I feel that my prior career prepared me for that. I admit it, I'm a touchy-feely person. If someone wants a hug, I'm going to give them a hug. If they reach for my hand, I'm going to reach for their hand as well, and I'm going to hold it. I'm going to be what it is that they need for me to be at that very moment. Every person is going to be different in what they need on an emotional level. Some want to be spoken with. Some want that silence, and it's just kind of determining what it is that they need. And we get that from the relationship that we've built with them beforehand. Like Anise said earlier, in-person visits are crucial. A phone call is not going to give you as much information as sitting in front of someone and seeing the space that they live in and seeing their responses, their body language. So the emotional support is a very personal and private thing, and everyone's going to be different. So we just need to look for those cues so that we can be what they need us to be at that time. Anise, how about yourself? Spiritual support, which is a little different from emotional support, they go together, but they're a little different. In my practice, I've always found that everyone wants to be remembered. And that's one of the biggest angsts that occurs, I think, in hospice. Families, patients, they want to know that somebody will remember them after they're gone. It's a very complex problem that a lot of dying people have. So spiritually, I try to point out the things to them in doing life review that they did matter. Every one of them matters, and they've left a footprint on the earth, whether they feel they were important or not. I think VITAS in particular does a marvelous job with that because our chaplains are marvelous. And I think when I don't really understand the religious side of their spirituality, then I have chaplains come in and help me navigate that part. Emotionally, it's good for us to get into these conversations with people. It helps us bring meaning to our own lives. Really great that you've had the opportunity to tap into the other resources at your disposal. But how do you take the time and what do you do to educate your patients and their families with respect to the resources available to them, both at VTOS and otherwise? 
So the resources that VTUS offers are incredible. I like that we have so many things that we can pull from to help educate the families. Maybe it's about the disease process. Maybe it's about anticipatory grief. Resources that even go down to the specifics of their actual disease process. Maybe it's COPD. Maybe it's dementia, heart failure. I think that education and information are crucial parts of what we do because it helps give, in my opinion, it helps give someone a sense of control over a situation that they really have no control over. If we educate the families and the patients on what they can expect, what they might see, what they might experience, then they can kind of start to prepare that within themselves. My hope would be maybe it's going to decrease some of that anxiety when they start to experience that because there's going to be a little file that's kind of been formed in their mind and they're going to pull from that and they're going to remember, oh, okay, this is something that's very normal in this process. So the education and the information component, I feel, is one of the most important things that we do because it's going to help them handle or deal with whatever is going to be coming up because the unexpected is very scary. But if we can give them a little picture of what to expect, we can then help them work through that and get them to a good quality of life. Absolutely. Anise, how about yourself? How do you go about educating your patients and the family members with respect to all the resources at their disposal? We've got volumes and volumes of things that we can use and handouts to give patients. I also am so grateful for the internet and Google because inevitably all day long, I'm looking up things that people would not expect at all. How do you donate a dog? How do you find a podiatrist that will come to the house? It goes on and on. And there's, of course, issues that we learn and we draw upon from graduate school about child development and life review and things like that, medical issues. And then we incorporate that in. But again, the internet, ETAS is internet, and we're good to go. Well, you both are very resourceful. That's wonderful. So switching gears a little bit, why do each of you feel it's so important for a patient to have an end-of-life plan? The end-of-life plan, there's two in my mind. There's one that's a legal component, so advanced directives. It is important to me because I really want the patient's wishes to be identified and followed through on. Now, having said that, we often get people who will not sign a DNR. It's not ideal, but it is their choice. But we have to have it noted somewhere. We have to make sure that everybody's aware of what this poor gentleman wants to do at the end of life. I think sometimes people have these fantasies about their funerals and what they're going to do and how they're going to go out in this world. And we just have to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So social workers, I think, are great at navigating that and making sure that the family is on the same page. There are legal ramifications. Who's the power of attorney? Who's in charge? Who's going to have access to the money to have the funeral? So we try to go A to Z and cover all of our bases so that the family and the patient's wishes are honored. Thank you. Anna, what would you like to add to that? 
Well, I think an end of life plan is important because it also is going to help with closure. Speaking from personal experience, I had a father who I think he thought he was going to live forever. So when it came to talking about these end of life choices, he just absolutely shut down. And I'm a social worker and I could not get that man to open up. So when he died, I was left to make these choices that I had really no idea about for my dad. I know what I'd want for myself. So I had to rely on what I knew of him as a person and as my father to make those decisions. So when it comes to end of life planning, what a beautiful gift it is that family members or that our patients leave for their family members when they openly talk about it, taking away those unknown decisions and just asking the family to honor the wishes. Those are two very different things. So it brings up conversations to have, maybe conversations that hadn't happened before, maybe closure on issues that hadn't happened before because we're actually addressing head on, I'm going to be dying and this is what I want, whether it's from reconnecting with family members to what kind of flowers you might want at your funeral. I mean, it's just a huge spectrum of different things that closure can come from when we're having those end-of-life plan talks. So, you know, you support both the patient and their family caregiver and the overall family. How is your support different for a patient than it is a family member? The patient, to me, is driving the bus. They oftentimes have issues that the family doesn't know about. So I have to look at the patient, talk to him individually. What kind of issues is he going to share with his family members? And then I have to help the family navigate the fact that they don't really know all of the issues or the secrets. So we try to bring them together. You might have drug addiction problems. You might have extramarital affairs. The list goes on and on. But I try to get permission from both sides that we're going to try to bring all the parties together and navigate how this is going to go. But first and foremost, patience. I advocate for, and if it's doable, I incorporate the family. Sounds like you have been up against a number of unique scenarios. You can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't. And how about yourself? Is there a difference in how you support the two? I think there's a slight difference, yes. So like a niece, the patient is my boss, so to speak. I'm going to get my direction and how I need to help from them. And sometimes it's having someone you're not related to, someone you don't know that well, that they kind of share their deep, dark secrets with. And it can be unloading for them, especially when we're dealing with patients who are dying. But I do let my patients know that what they talk about with me is between us. I want them to feel comfortable telling me those things that they are uncomfortable sharing with their family. Of course, if it's going to be something, if they tell me they're wanting to hurt themselves, that I can't keep that confidential. But I do, it's almost like an informed consent at the beginning as I'm talking to someone because I want them to open up and I want them to unload or share the burdens of their heart. Whereas with family members, if I have a patient that's able to participate like that, that's wonderful. 
oftentimes the families or the patients that I work with are unable to really articulate what's going on inside of them due to dementia. With families, I think I don't try to get as in-depth with them just because it's, I think that could kind of open up Pandora's box, so to speak, and we got to stay within the scope of our practice. So there is a slight difference or a slight approach that I take to patients as opposed to families. But now if a family just kind of opens up, just lets everything out, I'm not going to stop them. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to listen and then I'm going to figure out, okay, what can I help them with? It can't be everything, but what can I help them with? But that's just kind of how my approaches are different because ultimately it's the patient that I'm there for. We're there for the family unit, but ultimately it's the patient that is my highest priority. And Anna, how do you go about providing counseling to the family members during their grief journey? I think I'm very solution-focused because the fact of the matter is I can't be in there every single week. There's too much going on. So I'm very solution-focused in my approach. I'm a helper. I'm not an answer-giver. So I try very hard to get the families or get the patient to tell me how they want to handle certain things. So with the solution-focused for those kind of immediate issues that come up and that are resolvable, that's what I use. If I'm working with someone, say they're having issues with depression, with anxiety, and you're noticing a lot of thinking errors just while they're talking, you know, that catastrophic thinking, the black and white thinking, whatever it might be going on, then maybe I might tap into the CBT side of things, the cognitive behavioral therapy, and try to get them to think about things just in a slightly different way. If someone's able to, I absolutely love journaling. I think that writing things down is a great outlet. There's actual practice to it. It's not as easy as it sounds, but once you get the hang of it, it's actually a really fantastic resource for the therapy or the counseling side of things because I want them to take ownership and responsibility for their choices. I don't ever want to give someone an answer and say, this is what you need to do. And that works out horribly. And then suddenly I'm the one who's at fault because I'm the one who said they should do it. So it's very important for families, for patients to take ownership of their choices. Anise, how about yourself? Well, I'm a believer that a few good sessions really can relieve a lot of the suffering. Oftentimes, a lot of the ills in society in general are based around loss. And you see it more and more in hospice because you'll be talking to someone who perhaps suffers with drug addiction. And lo and behold, they lost their younger sibling when they were little and they never got to talk about it. I think it's important to help someone at the time that they ask for help. I'm not a believer in saying, well, let's see if we can find you a psychiatrist and you'll maybe get in in three months. So hospice whether it's the social worker or the chaplain, we can kind of tag team and make sure that we're giving that person some individual time. If there's real crises going on, then I think it's important to assess them. And maybe they need outside counseling from a psychologist or psychiatrist. My approach, I am more of a narrative therapy person. 
So I believe, again, we all want to have meaning making in our lives. We want to matter. And I think if you can help our clients reframe their lives, people have a tendency to always look at the negative, especially when someone is dying. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. But if we can look at the positives and bring it back and teach them how to have a different narrative in their lives, it does wonders. And you're both fantastic. And as social workers, you spend so much time with patients and their families. And, you know, I'm certain you build some very strong bonds. Can you give us some examples of how you form those bonds or an example of the strong bonds that you've had with patients and their families? I form strong bonds. And sometimes it's because a patient has touched you in such a way that you just never get over it. But I like to let patients know, we're not friends. I'm your social worker. I'm going to help you. The team is going to help you. You do have to have those boundaries. The bonds themselves can be so strong. I had a young woman who was dying one time, and I was helping the children. They were little, four and three. And it was my task to tell them that their mother was going to die. And the husband could not do it. And I never blamed him because he was too distraught. Well, I came to love this woman. And I think she came to trust me because she knew I would help those two little kids. And the day she died, I'll never forget it. They climbed into bed with her and she was dead. And they kept referring to her as Snow White, that she would wake up. And I just kept repeating to them, Snow White was a story, but their mother is not going to wake up. At one point, I had to walk out of the room because I was going to cry so badly. And I still feel that way now as I'm telling the story. I ran, I opened the door, and it was a laundry room. And I just completely lost all my emotions. And I just said, God, you got to help me. You got to get me through this. I was able to regroup came back and helped those little kids. But to see them, they lifted each finger, the hands, because they wanted to see if she was reacting. And those are bonds that will never go away. But I was the social worker, not the friend, not the relative. I was the social worker. Thank you so much for sharing that, Anise. Such a touching story. Anna, Can you give some examples of the bonds that you form with patients and their family members? The first person that came to mind, she was not on services for that long, maybe about a couple of months, but bonds can form very quickly because we're helping families through what could be the worst time of their life, essentially. But I remember Miss Lola, she was like 97 years old. She told me she's had a long, happy life. She was ready to go whenever the time came for her to go. But her oldest daughter was really struggling. That's actually a family that I was probably visiting weekly by that time because the older daughter was struggling. She would say things like, oh, you can't leave me, mom. And after about almost two weeks, I mean, just every day that I went, I could tell or I would think, surely she's not going to be here tomorrow. Today's the day. And so 
I feel like the bond that I had formed with this family kind of let me know what I needed to do. So finally asked the eldest daughter, I said, have you left this house to go to the grocery store to run errands? She's like, oh no, I can't leave the house. Mom's dying. Like I have to be here. What if something happened? So she and I just kind of talked and processed about how it's okay for life to continue for her because it doesn't stop and how she could say her goodbyes to her mom when she leaves the house or something. And so finally, and I got the youngest daughter in on the conversation and I said, you really need to encourage your sister to maybe go to church on Sunday. I said, ask her to go to church, tell her to say bye to mom just in case but to go to church just to get out of the house because I just had this feeling inside of me. And so that was on a Friday. On Sunday, I had my phone right next to me. I was sitting in the living room and I was just looking for emails or looking for notifications, something to tell me that she did in fact go to church. And at around 11.45-ish or so, I got a text message from the youngest daughter and she said, went to church and mom let go. So it was that speaking to the bond that I had with the family, I think, and just that connection that developed so quickly, because it's a beautiful thing when we're allowed to do that. A bond can form over someone offering me a cup of coffee, or I've had family members as I'm leaving, they're like, here, take this with you. Here's a bottle of water. It's hot outside. Or here's some cookies so you can have something to munch on on the road. That starts the bonding process right there. And that's part of being culturally competent. The bonds that we make, fortunately, we get to carry that with us throughout our career, throughout our life. And we get to reflect back on that. And for me, it gives me a sense of gratitude Gratitude that I woke up this morning, gratitude that I have these people in my life, my support system, gratitude for the gifts that I've been given. I'm very grateful for what VITAS allows me to do with the families and the patients. Thank you both for sharing just those very remarkable stories. Like those examples, your work is demanding, your work can be challenging. How does VITAS support you through those times? Anna? Well, I have to say that I was incredibly impressed with VITAS's PTO when I first came on board. And I soon learned thereafter why it's important to have that PTO. VITAS recognizes that we're giving our all and we need to have those times where we're selfish and just take the day for ourselves. So we're encouraged to utilize our PTO when we need it. I admit I'm horrible at that. I'm horrible at taking days off. And I've had some of the nurses that I work with say, you know, Kaliana, you haven't taken a day off in a while. Maybe you need to take some time for yourself so you don't burn out because we don't want you to go anywhere. Those kinds of statements, you know, and I feel appreciated by the team most definitely. I think that the mental health days that VITAS recognizes are needed is what really helps me. But VITAS is very generous with that because they recognize the importance of self-care. Thank you for that. Anise, how about yourself? VITAS is marvelous with food. <laughs> and <laughs> that's an old tradition in hospice because people who break bread together usually get along together. 
BTAS in general, I think over the years, I've seen the, the wonderful improvement in the team manager level of staff. And I think they've been trained well and recognize how much their own team members need more help and support. I think there is more food sharing. There's more like the state of the hospice meeting, various things that VTAS does that help. The team meetings is a very vital place where you can spot people who need a little tweaking and maybe you throw them a little lunch, things like that. I think it's really important, but I think VTAS overall does a good job with it. Wonderful to hear you both say that. Before we wrap up, we'd like to do a segment that basically is passion in action moments. We're hoping each of you can take a moment to think about a moment that was most touching for you in your time at VTAS. Anna? I would have to say The thing that's going to stay with me forever, I was working with a family and the dynamics were longstanding between the father and his children. So there was a lot going on at that point. And we were sitting all together and I was talking with the youngest son and I asked him, I said, have you given your dad permission to let go? He said, no. Suddenly, the patient just kind of made this noise. Yes, he was imminent, but he, he made like this, took in this deep breath and then he let it out and then he was breathing pretty shallow. And the son said, dad, it's okay. It's okay. I'll be okay. And one last breath. And I was there when he died and the son, his eyes just welled up with tears. Now this, I'm, I'm five foot one. I want to say that he was probably at least six foot two. He was a big guy. And the son just got up and came over to me and just hugged me and started to cry. He still calls me, checks in with me just to say, hey, I'm doing okay. Or, you know, I'm doing better with this or that. But that was just a very touching moment for me that I got to be there when my patient was called home and I got to support the son at the same time. And I think that for me, I kind of told myself, this is why I do what I do. That story just truly touched my heart. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Anise, I'm certain you've got one or two up your sleeve. (laughs) I do. And people that know me know that if I don't remain passionate, then you should just put me out to pasture because you can't do this work without feeling it. These passionate moments come and go all the time. And sometimes when you least expect it, I had a gentleman a few years ago, young guy, thirties, he had nowhere to live. He had no footprint in the world. And I remember thinking, my gosh, you're a handsome guy. You're a nice guy. Of course you had a footprint. Well, he struggled with some addictions, and his family didn't really want to take him in when he became terminally ill. And I'll never forget, a friend of his, a young girl, took him in. And I remember telling her that I've never seen someone so compassionate who would take in a friend, and they weren't great friends, but she felt sorry for him. 
And she looked at me and she said, but who else is going to do it? And I remember thinking, my gosh, you're kind. So she took this gentleman in. I would visit him. And one day I said to him as he was getting closer, I said, you know, is there anything you want in the world? Anything I can do for you? You want to go on a trip? Want to go out shopping? Whatever. And he looked at me and I'll never forget it. He said to me, Anise, would you do me a big favor? He said, could you get me about $40 and a new pair of slippers? And I said, what's the $40 for? And he said, because when I die, I just want people to know I had a little cash on me. And he did die. But I remember thinking, my gosh, the shame that some people carry. And to know that on your deathbed, all you cared about was that somebody thought you were okay. Somebody thought that you were worth it and you were worthy. He got his wish. I got him 40 bucks for his wallet. He had nothing else in his wallet and he had slippers. So that's how he died. Those are pretty much his belongings. Bless your heart. Ladies, you have done such a great job in really sharing a day in the life, if you will, and some of the most remarkable stories that I have heard yet on these podcasts, and everyone has shared remarkable stories. You have touched my heart in many ways. It's the best job in the world, honestly. Yeah. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's all for this episode of Passion in Action. I think you now understand how special it is to be a social worker in hospice and how valuable and critical these roles are. I want to extend a huge thank you to Anise and Anna for joining us today to share their experiences. If you are inspired by their stories and interested in fulfilling a career in hospice, you can visit careers.vitas.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Passion in Action from Vitas Healthcare.